Um, yes, when you give to the Annie Armstrong uh, Easter offering, that does help church planters mainly who are missionaries in North America. So reaching parts of North America without a lot of gospel presence. And this, this pastor was saying that, you know, before then he was working at a Dunkin' Donuts. And a lot of church planters have to do that kind of thing until they can get the support. And uh, so that when you give to our general fund, that does help them. But you can also give directly to um, the Annie Armstrong Easter offering as we get approached to Easter. It's just a few weeks away, and we're excited about that. But I want to tell you today about a story of a little girl, well, not a little girl, just a young woman from a small town who was applying for a job at the local newspaper. And you know kind of how small towns and newspapers are. They'll, you know, if you can write, maybe they'll, they'll hire you. And so she wanted to be a journalist, even though she had no experience. And so she got an interview set up with this small town newspaper. She went in and met the owner and met a couple people who would be supervisors and things like this. And the interview was going great. It was going really well. And then they asked her uh, about her uh, punctuation. How's your punctuation? And she said, well, you'll be happy to know that um, I've never been late for a job, a day of job in my life. <laughs> so if you didn't quite understand that, ask the person next to you or the person more than six, six feet from you, uh, around you. Uh, anyway, but just as the girl misunderstood uh, what she was being asked, uh, there's a lot of misunderstanding uh, in the Christian life about God's grace, about grace in general, about how to live in God's grace. And we've been covering this for weeks now in Galatians. But there's still misunderstanding about how we can apply that concept, the fact that we are sinners saved by grace, and that we are to live in the power of God's grace. How can we apply that in our own lives? What does that look like? And so that's what we're going to be looking at today as we are in Galatians chapter 5, starting in verse 1. And Paul says, for freedom... Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness, for in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. Verse 7, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. Verse 13. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, for through love... Serve one another, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Heavenly Father, as we continue to worship today, I come across this passage of Scripture, Lord, that deals with the Judaizers and how they taught Father, that you had to become Jewish. You had to go through the rites and the ceremonies of Jewishness 
to be saved. And Lord, we thank you that we do not have to do that. We thank you that by your grace we are saved through faith and faith alone. And so, Father, as we look at this passage and as we've been going through this letter in Galatians, that you would show us how we are to live lives of grace, not of legalism and not of loose living, but lives of grace. And show us how we can do that, Father, today. Lord, I pray that my words are yours today and that your spirit fills me. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to give you today three truths about living a life of grace. Three truths about living a life of grace. Number one, a life of grace includes faith working through love. Faith working through love. And I, of course, take this right from verse 6. Look at verse 1. He says, for freedom, Christ has set us free, free from sin. He says, stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. A yoke being a burden, like you would yoke, you would yoke a farm animal up, a beast of burden, and pull something. That's what he's saying. Don't, don't be putting something on you again, a burden that where you're having to pull the law around to be saved. And this verse encapsulates the essential message of this entire letter. So if you want to know what Galatians really is about, is the fact that Christ has set us free. We are free in Jesus. We do not have to submit to another extra piece of religion. You are free in Christ, therefore stay free. Now this issue was decided in the Council of Jerusalem. We have this in Acts 15 where Peter says this. Now therefore, why are you putting God to the test by placing a yoke on the neck of the disciples that neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear, but we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. He said, whether you're Jewish, whether you're Gentile, no matter who you are, you're all saved the same way, not by keeping the law, but through the grace of Jesus Christ. Jesus saves you. Jesus plus nothing else saves you. Jesus plus something else does not save you. It's all through Christ. He says that no one can bear the burden that even our forefathers could not bear. So don't go back to that. He says in verse 2, look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be no advantage to you. He says if you accept this false teaching that you essentially have to become Jewish with all the rites and the ceremonies and everything they do and all the feasts that they do, this is what he's talking about. If you accept this, then there's no reason to have Christ in your life. There's no advantage. He says, if you go this route, and they hadn't all gone this route, so this was a critical point in the relationship, that he's urging them to reject this. He says, if being Jewish is what saves a person, then Christ is no help at all. God's grace isn't grace. Jesus then died in vain, and if following laws saves you, if following moral commands saves you, then Christ is purposeless. And just in case the Galatians didn't understand what they were flirting with, Paul adds in verse 3, he says, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. He says this, if you're going to put that burden on yourself and if you're going to say you have to follow the law to be saved, then you better hope you never, ever break a command of the Lord. The first law that you break, you will lose your salvation. So he says, so he says if, if you accept this, then you then have to, to 100% always from now on keep the law of God. You can never mess up. 
So he said, are you prepared to live a life like that? To then make some other means of salvation our priority, he says, actually cuts you off from the body of Christ. Look what he says in verse 4. If you do this, you are severed from Christ. Now, don't miss the play of words here with what he's talking about. He says, you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified the law, you have fallen away from grace. And that, what a sad state of affairs to taste the goodness of God, to taste the freedom that Christ gives us through salvation from saving us from our sin and then to fall away from grace into some other system where we're never good enough. What a tragedy that would be, he says, to fall from grace. Yet to only taste the goodness of God, to only reject it again. Have you ever tasted something just that's so good? You know, there's a a favorite meal I have from a restaurant. I guess I'm picking on restaurants again this week. But a favorite meal I have from a restaurant that uh, it's really good when they make it right. You know, the sauce is in there and just tastes really good. And I had it last night. And the sauce wasn't in there. It was just okay, you know. But I wasn't happy. You know why I wasn't happy? Because I know how it could be. <laughs> I know how it could taste, right? This is what he's saying. You've tasted the goodness of God and you've settled for some sauceless pasta. <laughs> Hope I don't give it away. Some sauceless pasta. You, you, you settle for something that looks like it, but it's not the same thing. It's not the good thing. And that's what he's saying. He's saying, you've tasted the goodness of God, but now you're rejecting it for some cheap imposter. He says, don't do that. Then he says in verse 5, for through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. What an amazing verse this is. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly await the hope of righteousness. See, when we place our faith in Christ... We receive the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God that dwells inside of us, Christ inside of us. And through this gift, we are enabled and through God's grace to continue to be conformed to the image of Christ throughout our lives. God's will for your life is to become more like Christ morally as you continue to live. And we have, one, we have hope, he's saying, that one day we will be Righteous. Now, we are righteous in God's eyes because of what Christ has done for us. He sees us as innocent, not as guilty because of what Jesus has done on the cross. But one day, we will also be morally righteous in heaven. Can you imagine a day where a bunch of Baptists are together in heaven and not one of us has sinned? Not one of us is sinning. Can you imagine any group of people together where there's no sin present? Any Christian, one day, that's how it will be in heaven. All of us together, fellowshipping together, not standing six feet apart, hugging one another, eating good food in heaven. There'll be food in heaven with the best sauce and, and never sinning. Amen. No one's ever going to tell you, no, you didn't make that right. <laughs> no hurt feelings. No accidentally sinning against one another. Just a day where we are all morally righteous. Can you imagine? That's why eternity is going to be wonderful. You know, I don't know who doesn't like a good family reunion. But you know, when you have a family reunion, it's a two-edged sword, right? You get to see all these people you love, but the other edge of the sword is you've known these people your whole life. 
and they've known you, and they might bring up things in the past that you've done, or there might be some hurt feelings. That might happen from time to time. Well, in heaven, it's a family reunion where none of that happens. There's only good, only righteousness, no sin, and it goes on forever. That's heaven. That's heaven. If you've been isolated, you know how far, how hard it is to be away from people. There's no isolation in heaven. There's only you and the brothers and sisters in Christ and Jesus, and we're always serving one another, we're always loving one another, and there's no sin. Why? Because Christ has abolished it on the cross. It is what the Garden of Eden should have been like so many years ago. So he says, we have this hope of righteousness. So don't try to be perfect by doing all these laws just so you can say, I need this for God to love me. That's not what living in faith is. And he says in verse 6, For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision accounts for anything. What counts, he says? Faith working through love. In Christ, God's word says that all that truly matters is faith working. Not faith working for love, not to earn the love of God, but faith working through love. Through love. Love for God. God's love for you, your love for other people. So a life of, a life of grace uh, includes faith working through love. We live the Christian life not so we can earn God's love, but because we have received God's love. And because we love what God has done for us, and we love God for who he is, and we then love others. So if we can live in grace, we live by faith working through love. Secondly, a life of grace includes obedience working through truth. Obedience working through truth. He says in verse 7, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? The Christian life is a race. And it's not a sprint. And it's not a 5K or a 10K. It's not even a marathon. It's not even a super marathon. It is a race that doesn't end until you die in this life or until Christ comes back. It is a race that never ends. But sometimes people want to quit beforehand. Sometimes we might be tempted to kind of tap out before we get to the end. We want to quit, but you can't. And, and the word for hinder has this idea of being cut off in a race. It's literally what it means. Who has cut you off in your race? You ever been cut off before in a race? Maybe you know what it's like driving down 52, not that you were racing down 52. But maybe you're driving down 52 and, and somebody cut you off how jarring that is, how startling that is. You might, for one, you almost feel like you got in a wreck. And then it kind of gets your mind off what you were doing and it kind of irritates you. And you may think to yourself, you know, maybe I don't want to go any farther. The Christian life is a goal. And that goal is to live like Jesus until the end. I remember when I was in high school, I got in a wreck where a car pulled out in front of me. And I was very goal-driven even then. I had kind of a one-track mind of what I wanted to do. And it was a Wednesday evening, and I was going to church. I was going to my youth group. I was a senior in high school, and I was going to church. And this woman cut in front of me, and I, and I hit her and, and totaled my car. And the first thing that popped in my mind when, as I was sitting in some random business driveway with a totaled car was, after I realized I'd been in a wreck, was not that, oh, my gosh, I'm okay, or secondly, uh, my car's totaled. My first thought was, I'm not going to be able to make it to church tonight. That was my goal. And I realized I wasn't going to accomplish my goal that evening. This is what he's saying. He's saying, who has cut you off? Who has hindered you 
from trying to get to your goal. And he says in verse 8, this persuasion, this temptation of this legalism is not from God who calls you. It's not from God who calls you. This, this teaching is not from God. Then he says in verse 9, you may have heard this quoted before. This is where it comes from. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Now, yeast in the New Testament is always regarded as a symbol for evil. Well, why is that? Yeast is what makes it taste good, right? Well, the Jews were called to eat unleavened bread. And they were called to do that to show that they were a holy people set apart for God. It was a way to reach the communities around them and to show that they were different. But a li- and so for a little leaven to get into the Jewish bread was an unholy thing, it was an impure thing. And this is how false teaching affects churches. False teaching that creeps into a church that says, well, you need Jesus plus this or Jesus plus that. It doesn't just affect the children's ministry or just the senior adult ministry or whatever like that or just worship attenders. It affects the entire church. Just like leaven going into a lump, it affects them all. And this is what Paul's saying. This little leaven may seem harmless, but it just, it's like leaven going into a lump of, uh, to a loaf of bread and it goes through the entire bread. But... Paul then encourages him, verse 10, he says this. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view. He says, I know you're being tempted with this, and I know it's growing, and there are people who are saying this is the way to go. He said, but I have confidence that you will take no other view, and the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. He says, the false teacher will will get their judgment, that he is is secure in his faith about that. And he says, And firmly, you know that I'm not false because if I was false, I would not be persecuted like I am. Verse 11, he says, if I still preach this, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. The thing about the gospel is this. It is offensive. It will offend people. It will offend the culture. You know why it's offensive? Because the gospel tells us that we are all sinners in need of saving. That we are all sinners in need of grace. That we've all broken God's law. And the word sinner is offensive. We don't even like to call people sinners anymore. We say things like, well, they made a bad choice. Or they made a mistake. I even say it sometimes about myself or other people. We don't just say, well, they sinned. That's what it is. It's breaking God's law. The fact that we even call it that is offensive to the culture we live in today. And he says, if I preach something other than that, then the, the, the offense of the cross has been removed. The gospel will never be politically correct because it will offend someone somewhere, some way. We have to remember that. It offends even us. And then he says a, a shocking statement in verse 12. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. This is going on some of the language he's talking about. He says, if you like circumcision, go ahead and emasculate yourself. And as shocking as it is for him to say this, he's comparing it to the practice of the pagans of the day who practice self-mutilation even. And so he's saying, Jews, you're just as bad as the pagans. Those who, Judaizers who are saying this as those you think need Jesus. To live a life of grace means that we obey the truth. doesn't mean we obey the law. Any person can try to obey the law. But obeying the truth of the gospel is far more difficult. And it must be spirit-led. In fact, I was thinking and praying this week about this phrase, obeying the truth. 
And I found myself struggling with the vocabulary to explain what this even means, to obey the truth of the gospel. And what it means is this. It's very simple, actually. The concept boiled down to the bottom line is this. To obey the truth of the gospel means this. To live like Jesus. It means to live like Jesus. When I was in high school years ago, I was in high school when the fad came out of the WWJD bracelets. Y'all remember those? Some of you might still wear those or have. I've seen, sometimes I've seen kids wearing them like it's still cool maybe for a month or so and they'll get one and they'll lose it. But it was all the rage when I was in high school. Everybody had them and they had all different types of colors you could wear. And then all these other bracelets were made with different things on them and stuff. But the premise, as much as we want to make fun of it or this or that, the premise of it is still very true. When you find yourself in a situation, you don't ask yourself, what should I do? Or, or making a decision like, what should I do? You, if you know your Bible, you know what Jesus did and what he said, you ask yourself, what did Jesus do? What would Jesus do? What would Jesus do? It's, it's, if we're going to live like Jesus, we have to ask ourselves these questions. How would Jesus handle this person? Can I then model Jesus? A life of grace includes obedience, working through truth, living like Jesus. Not living like a rule follower, living like Jesus. Jesus did not follow all the rules, yet he never sinned. Because he was a perfect representation of the character of God. So, secondly, number three. I mean, finally, number three, a life of grace includes love working through service. A life of grace includes love working through service. Verse 13, he says this, you are called to freedom, but do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. See, what the moralists would say was they would say, well, we have to live like this way because if we don't, we'll be living like Pagans who have no belief system. What we call it in the South, loose living, sinful living, right? That, that, that's the argument. Well, you know, you can live like this or you can live like that. So some who realized they were free from the moral requirements of seeking a right standing before God, they were tempted to live however they wanted. One side is legalism, the other side is this libertinism where they can live how they want. They can do what they want, when they want, why they want. Why? Because they've been saved by the grace of God. And you can't judge what they're doing. You've been saved by God's grace. Now Paul gets into this even more in the next section we'll cover next week when he talks about the desires of the flesh and the fruit of the spirit. But that's what they're saying. And Paul knew that there would be some that would say, well, if I don't have to have the law in my life, I can just live however I want to live. And Paul says, no, you can't do that. That is wrong then and it's wrong now. Christian freedom can deteriorate quickly into immoral living and unethical living where sin has no consequence. See, the great thing about legalism, why it's so tempting to church folk like myself and like you, is legalism is pretty clean. You can live a moralist, legalist life and not know Jesus and never really get in trouble. But libertinism is very dirty and it's obviously dirty and you can see it when it happens. I've heard pastors before Dodge preaching on sin. And they just say, you know, I don't want to mention sin. I just preach grace. When they do, that's a red flag. Let me tell you why. The law, God's word, makes great guardrails for us. This is why we have the Ten Commandments posted places and things like this. It just won't save you. 
It won't make you right with God, but it's, it's great guardrails because it's a reflection of the character of God. It's who God is. And this is the tension that we walk in as we walk in Christ. Half of you will struggle being moralists and legalists. And the other half of you will struggle the other direction of just living how you want to live. If we fall somewhere along that line. And, and, the, and the struggle is following Jesus in the middle. The legalists say, don't judge, I mean, liberals uh, or libertinisms will say, don't judge me. And legalists say, I will judge you. <laughs> we all fall somewhere along that spectrum. And we need to just follow Jesus. But just following Jesus is much more difficult than you would think. Just living like Jesus. So Paul warns these people who are living in the free grace of God, and he hits it even harder in the next section about living in the spirit. He says, no, 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 just because you don't have to have the law to save you doesn't mean you don't need the law every day to make sure you're living right. You have freedom in Christ, and that means to live the law the way God intended you to live. Then he says in verse 14, for the whole law, this whole law that you want to talk about, is summed up in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The whole Old Testament, Paul says, is summed up in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. See, we already love ourselves naturally. And what I mean by that is we wake up in the morning, we're immediately thinking about the things we have to do. And we ask ourselves, what should I do today? Or what should I eat today? Or what should I wear today? Or where should I go today? And if you live with someone or if you're married, you, you, you can't, you have the question where you have to say, well, what are they doing today? Or what should we do today? Or can I wear this or not? <laughs> Sometimes I even ask my wife, should I say this or not? <laughs> right? we, we, have to, we have to put the other person first, right? That's what love is. And so he says, love your neighbor as yourself. Don't wake up thinking about what you're going to do. Think about how you can help someone today, how you can serve someone today. Don't live in such a way that you're putting, that you're putting burdens on other people's backs. That's legalism. Don't live in such a way that by your lifestyle, you're giving permission for others to live a life of sin. That's free grace. Don't live in that way either. Stay close to Jesus. Walk in his paths. Love your neighbor. You may have heard of LaGuardia Airport in uh, New York. And if you didn't know, it was named after their famous mayor who was there in the Depression in World War II, Mayor Fiorello LaGuardia. Some of you may know this. And he was an interesting person. Uh, he was a liberal progressive Republican, right? Really odd. They don't exist. Those people don't exist anymore today. But he was liberal progressive on a lot of issues, and he was a Republican. And so he had people on both sides of the political aisle who uh, supported him. And he was controversial at times because of that. Well, he was mayor of New York City during the worst days of the Great Depression and all of World War II, very complicated time uh, in, in the life of, uh, of America. You had, the, you had prohibition during this time, all these things, the gangs in New York and all these things were going on. And he was a real kind of colorful character, even though he was short. He was a kind of a big personality. And he would ride the New York City fire trucks. And one time he took an entire orphanage to a baseball game. And one time the New York papers were on strike. And he got on the radio and he read the Sunday comics to the children. So he did all sorts of interesting things as the mayor. He loved the city. Well, one night, a cold night 
in January 1935, there was night court. Y'all remember night court? Maybe you went before to pay a parking ticket or something like that. There used to be night courts. And he, and he went to this night court, and it was in the poorest section of the city, one of the poorest sections. And he came in, and he said, I'll do the bench today. And, and he gave the judge a night off and said, you take a night off, and I'll, I'll do the bench today. And within a few minutes, a tattered old woman was brought before him. And she was charged with stealing a loaf of bread. And he asked her why she did it. And she said that her daughter's husband had deserted her. And her daughter was sick. And her two grandchildren were starving. The shopkeeper, for whom the bread was stolen, refused to drop the charges. He says, Your Honor, it's, it's a bad neighborhood. And what she did was illegal. And what she did should be punished to give other people a lesson. And the mayor looked at her and thought about it and said, You're right. She should be punished, and I am going to punish you. The law makes no exceptions. So it's either $10, this is 1935, $10 or 10 days in jail. And while she thought about it, the mayor reached into his pocket and pulled out a $10 bill and said, I'm going to pay it for you, and paid it for her. And then he said, and furthermore, I'm going to fine everyone in this courtroom 50 cents. We all looked at him and said, what? 50 cents for living in a town where a person has to steal bread so that her grandchildren can eat. So they collected a day, and the following day, the New York City newspapers reported that a bewildered older lady who had stolen a, life, a loaf of bread to feed her starving children now had $47.50 to use. A law was broken. It had to be paid. The mayor paid it himself. That is grace. Now, the other thing he did is a whole other sermon. We won't get into that today. But paying the $10 was grace. And as we live our lives, do we view ourselves as the mayor? Do we view ourselves as the old lady or as the people in the courtroom? Well, in one way, we're all of them. In one way, we're the sinner that was guilty and could not pay our own debt and kept sinning because we had no other way. And Jesus Christ came in and paid our debt for us. But in other ways, we're also like the people in the courtroom that are responsible for other people to help serve them and to love them, to give grace to them when they need it in their lives as well. That is grace. Are we living our lives thinking that we paid our own debt? Or are we living our lives knowing that we're guilty? And we too sinned out of selfishness or desperation. But we too have a God who paid our debt. And as we seek to live a life of grace, as we follow Jesus, when we're dealing with other people, let's never forget that we too are sinners. And but for the grace of God, that's where we would be. Heavenly Father, as we close our time together today, we thank you for your gospel, how it's done for us. Lord, I thank you that your gospel changes us. The Holy Spirit changes us. We go from being selfish people to people who enjoy helping others, who love being able to serve others in ways that they can't. And just as the mayor many years ago, did not hesitate to pay this woman's debt. When people sin against us, let us forgive them. But we know that you handle the consequences. 
You handle how things work in their lives, but for our own lives, let us be people who can live in grace, model grace, not model loose living, not model legalism, but model living a life with the guardrails of your word, showing us how we should live and then being conformed to your image today. Well, as we close our time today, if there's one in here that's never placed their faith in you, they've been trying to live their own life, either they've been trying to earn your love or they've been running from your love, whatever one it is, that they would turn to you today. You would save them and give them new life in Christ. Father, as we close our time together, Lord, I pray that we would sing with our hearts to you today and praise your name for the grace you've given us and that we would be people of grace as we seek to live a grace-filled life. Lord, we love you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.